This morning we return once again to the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. You can certainly follow along as always with the insert found in your bulletin. This is a brief series where we're looking at the Lord Jesus' messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor, these real first century churches of the ancient world. And today we once again head north in our travel travels, as you can imagine, this courier taking this message, taking this scroll uh, given to John by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and written down, and he's traveling around what is modern-day Turkey and traveling now directly north, slightly east, 65 miles up the coast from Smyrna, 15 miles inland to the ancient city of Pergamum. And I want us to keep in mind as we think through and walk through these different messages that, again, every ancient church heard the message to the church prior and to the church that was still to come. And these churches are not separated, they're not even separated by Seattle to Portland. They're closer than that in terms of their distance between one another. And so it's to be expected that as these churches, though they reign or though they uh, exist in cities with unique character, with unique distinctives, they're breathing the same cultural air of first century Asia Minor Roman Empire. Greek culture. And so it's to be expected that we're going to find similar themes and similar overlaps as we make our way through that region. Ephesus, remember the first church that we looked at, they were spoken to about how they loved. They had dealt with false teaching, but they had failed to love. They had lost their first love. And Smyrna had endured persecution, and remember last week the Lord didn't criticize Smyrna in his tenderness. They'd endure persecution, but they needed courage. As we come this morning to Pergamum, we're going to find similar, similar things. One of the other things that we're going to find that's similar that is consistent throughout these messages to the seven churches is the introduction of the Lord Jesus and the description of of who He is to that church. Last week we looked at the statement, I am, I know, and I will give, and we camped out and made that one truth, and we unpacked that, what that meant for Smyrna, to know, to have God reveal, to have the Lord Jesus reveal Himself, and then to have the Lord Jesus hold out what he had for that particular church. We find the same thing today. But we're going to spread it out over the whole message rather than just putting it in one point. So, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17.
Listen as I read. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let him be seated. If I were to tell you this week that I'm headed to the Windy City, where would you think I was going? Chicago. Now there's some debate about whether that Windy City designation came from the coasts blowing, uh, excuse me, the cold breezes coming off of Lake Michigan or has to do with all the hot air that politicians blow in that city. Nevertheless, Chicago is the Windy City. The Big Apple is New York City. Boston is Beantown. Seattle is the Emerald City. The Big Easy, New Orleans. And then there's Sin City, Las Vegas. Well, we have a city with a name of its own, at least in some respects. This is the city of Satan's throne. Yikes. Of course, that's not a cultural designation. That's a statement from the Lord Jesus Himself. That's the Lord's opinion anyway. It's an opinion built upon reality, not simply legend. But why is Pergamum the city of Satan's throne? Well, Pergamum was a significant city in the ancient world, as all these cities that we've been working our way through in this section of God's Word are. It had once been the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a place of of high learning. It boasted one of the largest libraries in the ancient world with over 200,000 scrolls. In fact, we get our English word parchment from the name Pergamum. There was apparently a thriving industry of animal skins that fed into that scroll learning library. It was also a seat of great governmental power. 
and authority. One commentator stated it, if Ephesus was the New York of Asia, Pergamum was the D.C. of Asia. But Pergamum was also, as a lot of these cities were, Pergamum was also steeped in religion. And Pergamum in particular was a leading religious center of the ancient world. There was a temple dedicated to the goddess Roma, another temple dedicated with a medical college attached to it, to the patron god of healing that's represented by a serpent. And sometimes still in our modern day, you see that representation of of a serpent on some of our medical insignia. It's where it comes from. And at the city's highest point, there was an enormous altar to the god of all gods in the Greek pantheon, Zeus himself. It was the largest altar in the ancient world. It was 117 feet wide. It was 110 feet deep, and it was 40 feet high. So Jesus knows where his church dwells. He knows what Pergamum is about, and he doesn't mince words. He says, you are existing, you are holding fast in a hard place. Not unlike Smyrna, not unlike Ephesus, in Pergamum, it was hard to be a Christian. It was hard to be a follower of Christ. In fact, Antipas, a man who we know nothing about, and the Scriptures don't tell us anything about, but interestingly enough, and importantly enough, the Lord Jesus knows his name and remembers his name and remembers his sacrifice, but he had paid the ultimate price. His witness had brought him to the point of death. Now, if we stop there for just a moment, in this country, we've talked about this already, in this country, we are not to the point of shedding blood for our faith. But how this series has reminded us again and has stirred up in us as we look at the cultural landscape that we're a part of of the struggle that we face, of the pressure that we feel in our day with the doctrine of the day, the normalization and the demand for acceptance, even for promotion of behaviors and lifestyles that are contrary to God's Word. The Lord Jesus says to Pergamum, you had done well in this den of evil, particularly in those days when Antipas lost his life. You you have withstood this direct assault against your faith, and yet, we might say, Pergamum had left the back door open. They had left the back door cracked. Three truths for us to think about this morning. And the first one is this. Compromise kills witness. Compromise kills witness. Maybe it was Pergamum's desire to be relevant. 
a word that we like to throw around these days. Maybe their desire to be relevant in an ever-changing culture. Maybe it was their, their academic, learned, intellectual case for these things. We see some of that in our culture too, don't we? However it happened, in the church of Pergamum, in that city where Satan's throne dwelled, compromise had snuck in. And it was killing a once strong witness. And it was grieving the Lord. And what was it exactly? It was the teaching of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. Now, don't understand what the Lord Jesus is saying to his church, a church that would have been comprised in part at least of of Jews who knew the Old Testament, who knew the stories of their people. In order to understand this, we as Gentiles, we've got to go back to the New Testament, back to the life of the nation of Israel as we find it in Numbers. God's people are in the plains of Moab. They are migrating in the wilderness. And and the king of Moab, Balak, is not pleased He had seen what Israel had done to the Amorites, and he was not eager to let that happen to his people. And so what did Balak do? He summoned a man named Balaam. Now, Balaam has risen to fame because of his donkey. This isn't the donkey story that we're talking about. But Balaam was a pagan seer that was hired by Balak to curse God's people. To reach into the spiritual realm, as we've been talking about in the discipleship hour. To reach into the spiritual realm and speak curses over God's people. And so Balaam went to do this, and in a beautiful display of God's sovereignty over all evil that comes against his people, it backfires. Every time Balaam speaks, he can't speak curses, he can only speak blessing. The direct assault doesn't work. And so the back door has got to be used. Balaam counsels counsels, uh, Balak to send in his women, to send in Moabite women to seduce Israel. And it results in this, Numbers chapter 25 Verses 1 through 3, when Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked itself to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. While we don't know much about them, in the same way we believe, because they're mentioned here with Balaam and the story of God's people in Numbers, we believe that the teaching of the Nicolaitans was luring God's people into spiritual adultery through sexual sin. Right? The Lord had called His people to purity. He called them to commitment to His design for sexuality, to a single-minded focus to Him and His ways. 
The Lord Jesus says to the church of Pergamum, just like happened back then in Numbers, it's happening now. And the church is beginning to compromise. And as I thought about this and as I studied this, I, ha- I had to say to myself, boy, there's, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? How confused we, we being our modern day and age, how confused we are about this same thing. Misguided sexuality. Yes, we need to be compassionate with those who are struggling with these issues, with these questions. We need to engage them with with open arms. But they must be open arms that lead to truth. As we think about the words to the church in Pergamum and specifically to the compromise that they had led in their back door, if the, thir- if the next, excuse me, if the last 30 years of, of our lives, of our culture, are any indication at the, concerning the trajectory that we are on, boy, the church must, as the Scriptures say, gird up its loins. Let's tuck ourselves in because we're in for a fight. Our children are in for a fight. For the sake of our witness, for the sake of the next generation of worshipers, we must not compromise. And while I think it's interesting that there's this issue of sexual sin plaguing the church at Pergamum and the compromise happening there. It's not just about that. It's not just in matters of sexuality that we can apply this into our own day, into our own life. Mark Sayers in his book entitled The Disappearing Church, it's a little thin book, great book about the state of the church. He speaks of several ways that the modern church is in danger, according to him, Ironically enough, in the name of relevancy, ways that the church is in danger of becoming irrelevant. And I wanted to read just a few of of the titles of his chapters. Chapter 6, the title is, Reject the Implicit Prosperity Gospel. We are slaves, not seekers. Bottom line, of this chapter is that the gospel reminds us that we are not God, that we are called to bow to a king, not to test drive him to see if we like his handling. We do not sit on the throne, he sits on the throne. And so what are we calling people to? Chapter 7, stop catering to public opinion, oh how insidious this is, how subtle this is, a nice, comfortable life with a long retirement. That's what you deserve. That's what you need to work for, right? That's what the world tells us, but we're more about 
we are about more than self-improvement. We're about more than self-empowerment. In chapter 8, he says, don't offer everything. Deliver truth. A quote from this chapter, he says, we see Jesus building His ministry upon going deep with a few rather than going shallow with the public. Now again, do these things need to be lived out with tenderness, with care, with compassion? Absolutely. Ephesus reminded us of that. Stand on truth, but do so in love. But Pergamum's issue was not harshness. Their issue was that they had become mush. That their compromise had killed their witness and they had tarnished the name of Jesus. Pastor Ken Hughes states that God's plan for reaching the world has been to create a people distinct from the world. Compromise kills witness. That's the first thing I think we learn from the church of Pergamum. And the second is this, right doctrine matters. Right doctrine matters. This is a message that the church always needs to hear, but particularly in an era where we hear things such as no creed is no creed but Christ. Or when we hear in our culture that truth is, is relative and is determined by the individual. In each of these letters, the Lord Jesus gives the church a description of himself, one that's particular to their context. And Jesus comes to the church at Pergamum in what way? He doesn't come with warm and fuzzies. Jesus comes with truth and justice. The picture is one who wields a double-edged sword. It's a picture that's already been given to us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And I think we can understand this picture of the Lord Jesus that he gives to the entire message of Revelation, but particularly the church in Pergamum in two ways. This is a sword of truth. Hebrews 4.12, a passage that's familiar to many of us in the church. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. To be sure, in the ancient world, in the first century church, Confusion about matters of how to follow Christ, of how to live for Christ, that was to be expected. The Lord Jesus is not getting on Pergamum's case for their confusion about these things. The only thing we need to do is read the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians to be reminded that the ancient church needed direction on these things. What the Lord criticizes Pergamum for and what He warns us about is being flanked by the culture in regards to things that are clearly revealed to us. Instead of holding fast to the truth of God's Word and what He has revealed to us, 
we begin to compromise. Jesus loved, no doubt. Jesus had compassion, no doubt. But he also called error, error. And sin, sin. Right doctrine matters. But the sword that Jesus holds in his hand for the church of Pergamon is not merely a sword of truth. It's also a sword of wrath. It's also a sword of wrath. Romans 13 talks about the governmental sword that's instituted by God as God's servant for our good. Romans 13, 4, we read, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, that is the government instituted by God, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. But you see, this sword... The sword held by the government is a sword that's so easily guided by human opinion, by public opinion. And that's not the sword that's being spoken of here. It's the sword of God's wrath, the sword of truth, the sword of God's direct judgment. And the people would have remembered the outcome of the story of Balaam and the Israelites whose sexual sin led them into idolatry and led them away from the Lord because they would have remembered that a plague killed 24,000 of their countrymen as a result of God's judgment. And so the question for us in the church as we see this picture of God with the sword of truth and of wrath being wielded before us is which sword are we going to fear? The sword of public opinion, the sword of earthly government, or the sword of God's wrath. And so the Lord says to the church, repent. Repent of your compromise. Hold fast to the truth. And this word repent, this is a, it's a word of hope. You can be restored, he says. You can be in right standing as you put an end to compromise, as you hold fast to my truth, as you fear the wrath to come. See, as this message, as all these messages come to us here at Ascension, we need to consider how this might speak to us. And I will say this, as we work our way through this church, through these churches, not every message is going to hit us in the same way, with the same intensity, with the same urgency. The Lord Jesus would commend us if he had a direct message for this particular local church in 2018. He would have commendation for us but he would also have warning. And he would also say, look at these churches and let these churches prod you to examine your own hearts, your own commitments, to be watchful concerning your own weaknesses. And sure, we as Reformed Presbyterians, I think we would say, yes, right doctrine matters. Matters. 
But that ought not lull us to not be watchful, to not be careful concerning compromise. One final truth for us this morning, and we'll end with this. Jesus gives and Jesus fulfills. Jesus gives and Jesus fulfills. The last thing I want us to see and meditate on for just a moment is what Jesus holds out for those who conquer. He holds out these gifts, two gifts that are rich in meaning, wrapped in mystery to some degree, yes, but also rich in meaning. The first is the hidden manna. Those of you who know the Old Testament well know that manna was what God provided for the nation of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness. It was God's provision for their need, for their life. As Jesus came and walked on this earth as God, He speaks in John 6, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so ultimately, the hidden manna, Jesus says, is me. Is me. And it's hidden because it's not yet been revealed, but when it comes, God will provide for His church. God will sustain for His church life-giving food, life-giving satisfaction for all eternity. Jesus gives and Jesus fulfills. And then there's the white stone. The white stone is an intriguing thing in the book of Revelation. Lots of ink has been spilt on the white stone. A lot of different uses, history tells us, of white stones in the ancient world at this time. Two of the significant uses of white stones were they were used as uh, legal tools to cast judgment. And specifically, the white stone was a stone that was, that was given as a casting of acquittal rather than guilt. The black stone was given for guilt. The white stone was given for innocence. One of the significant uses of white stones in the ancient world was they were used as admission into special events given to victors to be used to get into banquets. And then there's several other reasons, but just think about those two. Those two uses of white stones. How rich both those things are for the church. We are declared righteous legally in Christ. And we are adopted, given entrance into His family as sons and daughters. And even more than that, the white stone is not a nameless stone, but it's a stone with a new name. 
a new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And yes, we bear the name of Christ. We bear the name Christian. But I, I think the stone is more than that. I think the stone is more than that. He promised to his people in Isaiah 62, verses 2 and 3, he says this, The nations shall see your inheritance, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. And don't we have examples of that throughout the Scripture of the Lord when He changes His people, when He gives them a new status, when He declares them righteous and He makes them His own, He gives them a new name for that new identity. And so Abram becomes Abraham, Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul. And interestingly enough, going back to the very things that plagued Pergamum, the very things that the cultural air was fill up, filled of. Sexual sin leading to spiritual adultery. I think it's interesting and not, not coincidental that the things that these two gifts give to God's people, give to those who overcome fulfill the very things that sexual sin and idolatry put before us as a lie. Hidden manna is satisfaction. It's life. The white stone is identity. It's intimacy. Only He knows it. See, to a world that's craving those things, satisfaction and identity and intimacy, to a world that's craving those things and yet is misguided in all of its pursuits to try to fulfill them, Jesus reminds His church that that you hold them, but you must hold fast to me. You must overcome. And so the message to us is, may we have courage in our convictions to hold the truth, uncompromisingly so, to the world around us, that they too might be fulfilled in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church. We thank you for this picture that you give us in the ancient world of many of the same things that we see in our culture and in our day, and even in the church at large. Father, lead us by your Spirit. Guide us in the truth that we might hold fast, that we might not compromise, but that we might overcome by your grace and to your glory. This I pray in the name of Jesus.
Amen.